0: But you know, it's interesting as I study this Psalm because, you know, we spent some time talking about it last week and uh, we were in Psalm 132, but we really looked at the first 10 verses, the first half of this Psalm, um, and really looked at it kind of with an eye to the background, right? What were kind of the significant events that this Psalm really is kind of built on? And really the main thing that we talked about last Sunday was the Ark of the Covenant and Psalm 132, um, Again, there's no there's no author given. It's unlikely that it was David. Um I, I'm of the I'm of the inclination to think it was more likely that it was Solomon or someone during his reign, but I think probably Solomon would be the best bet. We have other psalms that he wrote. Um and so I think there's good reason maybe for us to think that. Uh at the same time, that's not that big of a deal, but um, but this psalm really reflects back on David's search for the Ark of the Covenant and his desire to have the presence of God in his life and in the life of the nation of Israel. Remember that the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of the presence of God. Now, sometimes the Israelites foolishly thought that the symbol itself had significance apart from the actual presence of God, and that's why they took it into battle thinking, oh, this will be our talisman by which we'll win the battle. And they failed uh, and lost the Ark of the Covenant for a period of time. And then, as we as we noted last week, the Ark after that ended up spending somewhere in the neighborhood of, of potentially 70 to 100 years, essentially, lost to the children of Israel. I mean, it wasn't totally lost. They kind of knew where it was, but but it was not searched for. They just forgot about it. All through the reign of King Saul, it was completely forgotten about. Forty years of King Saul's reign, the Ark of the Covenant was never once searched for or used, except for one moment where Saul thought about doing the same foolish thing that the Israelites had done and taking the Ark into battle as a talisman to win. Fortunately, and I think in God's mercy, God prevented Saul from doing that, but still, the Ark of the Covenant essentially was forgotten. And we said that there were some significant implications of that. We see in that, we see an example of Israel's spiritual lethargy, their, their, their dullness toward God, their, their tendency to simply go through life without regard for God. And of course, the minute we start to talk about Israel's tendency to do that, we realize that we have the same tendency from time to time to simply forget about God and what He is doing, and just go through life almost unaware of the presence of God. Without thinking about, without desiring to be in the presence of God and to experience fellowship with Him. And then we have David, and David comes on the scene, and David, you get a picture of David from the time he was a young man, longing for fellowship with God. You almost wonder if when David was a boy and they would, you know, they would go to the, the tabernacle uh, or they would go to, you know, they would gather together sometime and there would be the reading of the Word of God, the law. And they would read about how Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and they would read about how in the wilderness Moses and the Israelites built the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and all that stuff. And you almost wonder, you can kind of picture David as he's hearing those, those accounts being read from Exodus. You know those passages that you and I tend to just kind of go, oh, what is this about? Talking about all the, the building and the constructions and so many cubits and it's you know all this stuff. And we kind of our eyes glaze over and we go, oh, let me just skip to the part that's interesting. But you, you imagine David as they were reading that thinking, why don't we have the Ark of the Covenant today in the tabernacle? Why doesn't anybody go there to pray and seek the Lord's face? Even from the time he was a young boy, David, in his heart, begins to develop a passion and desire to see the Ark of the Covenant in the house of God, where it belongs. Not because the Ark of the Covenant by itself brought any sort of power, but because David longed to see God rightly at the center of everything in the the, the nation of Israel. And so what happens, of course, is as soon as David becomes king, And as soon as he begins, kind of gets established as king over all of Israel, we read there in in 2 Samuel chapter 6 how David goes and searches for the ark. And and Psalm 132 talks about that. Remember, we we read about that. How uh, he he goes and searches for the ark and there was a search made and they brought the ark back. Uh, We'll get to that here in a minute. But David... Uh, you know, went and searched for the ark, and then he and then he, he he brings it back into Jerusalem. And remember in 2 Samuel 6, it records David dancing, right? He, he's there in front of the ark along with a procession of people, and he's dancing before the Lord with, with total abandon. He doesn't care what anybody else thinks of him, even his wife at the time, uh Saul's daughter Michael, who he is married to, she uh she scorns him, she looks down on him. And David says, listen, I don't care what anybody thinks of me. I'm worshiping the Lord, and he is worthy of my worship. And it doesn't matter what I appear to be to others. That's David's heart. He wants to worship the Lord. But but here's the thing that's interesting about that. David, in 2 Samuel 7, we read this. 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 and 2. It came to pass, when the king was dwelling in his house... And Yahweh had given him rest from all his enemies all around. But the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. So for all of David's joy and rejoicing and worship as he brought the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem, he still didn't feel as though he had finished the task that he set out to accomplish he still felt like something was missing, right? He was living in a palace and yet the ark, the symbol of Yahweh's presence in the midst of his people is simply dwelling in a tent. And he brings this up to the prophet Nathan, godly prophet, the man of God there. And he asks him and Nathan says, listen, David, that's a great idea. You do what is in your heart to do. Go for it. But that very night, the Lord spoke to Nathan the prophet. And he told Nathan that David could not build a house for him because David was a man of war. But if you read that passage carefully, you notice he doesn't rebuke David for desiring to honor the Lord by building a house. I don't think this was an instance of David making a rash vow. Some people have characterized it that way. I don't think so. I don't think he rebukes David and says that David has done something foolish here in wanting to build a house. Because in 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 8 and following, we have the Lord making a vow to David. And here's what he says. Now, therefore, thus shall you say, here speaking to the prophet, to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I have made you a great name like the name of the great men who were on the earth. But it's the Lord here is the one who's the, 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 the blesser. He's the one who has raised up David. It's his grace that's, that's, that's in view here, not David's accomplishments. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore, as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. It's interesting that David wanted to build Yahweh a house. But the Lord promised instead to build David's house. Now, this vow that God makes, we often call it the Davidic covenant. It says this, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now this oath, this vow, this covenant is the focus of the rest of Psalm 132 from verse 11 to the end. Now see how this all begins back there in Psalm 132. It starts with David swearing an oath. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to Yahweh and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. What did David swear? Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for Yahweh, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of the woods, referring to the Ark of the Covenant here. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Yahweh, to your resting place, you and the Ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy for your servant David's sake. Do not turn away the face of your anointed. David swore an oath that he would not rest until he had found a place of rest for Yahweh. And clearly David's intention was more than just bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. Back to the tabernacle. That was stage one. He accomplished that. But then he wanted to go beyond. And so he swore this oath. And he he told Nathan what he wanted to do. And as we said, as we noted, back in 2 Samuel 7, but also here in Psalm 132, it's reflected. David swore an oath. What was God's response to David's the Lord swore an oath Himself. Look at verse 11. So here's the response. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon the th- your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. The Lord vowed His own vow to David. Notice here that uh, he, the Lord, didn't just vow a vow, right? We talked about the difference last week between a vow and an oath. A vow is the thing that you're going to do. The oath is when you bind yourself to do it. You swear that you'll do it. And here we're told that the Lord swore in truth to David. The Lord bound himself with an oath. That's really important. In fact, it even says it here, he swore an oath, he will not turn from it, there in verse 11. right? The, the purpose of the oath is to bind oneself, to do what you have sworn you will do. Once you swear it, you can't back out. Now this is really important here for us to understand because sometimes people will say this about God. They'll say, don't put God in a box. You ever heard anybody say that before? At least one person has heard somebody say that. Don't put God in a box. Well, that's right. I mean, at least in, in principle, I agree with that. I think a lot of times when they say that, what they mean is don't tell me that God won't do what I want Him to do. But that's, that's another message for another day. Okay. But understand this. When God swears an oath, He obligates Himself It's not putting God in a box when he has put himself there. When he has said, here is what I will do, and I swear to do it. That's what he's done here. If the Lord were to back out of his oath, then he would be false. He would deny his own name to do that. So even God cannot violate his solemn oath. Again, we like to say there's nothing God can't do, but there are things God can't do. Lying is one of them. Okay. Therefore, when God swears an oath, he has bound himself to do it. He has obligated himself. We didn't obligate him to do it. David didn't obligate God, God did. He obligated himself. What is it that he swore to David? Again, verse 12 or verse 11 tells us I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. This is, again, very much. Consistent with what we saw in 2 Samuel 7. What did this mean? It meant that David's throne has to continue past his own lifetime. It couldn't be cut off like Saul was. Remember, Saul had been king, but God said, okay, after you're done, it's done. Your line is cut off. So Saul and all of his sons died and were cut off from the throne. That can't happen to David. Because God said no. No. My oath is of your own body. The fruit of your body will sit on your throne. His throne has to continue. One of his sons has to succeed him on the throne. What God promised David here is a dynasty. But notice here, in verse 12, there is a condition attached to this succession. So God said, David, there's going to be a succession, a dynasty coming from your body. However, there's a condition. What's the condition? He says, as long as David's sons keep the covenant. And what covenant? My covenant, he says. What covenant is that? Well, that's not this covenant, the covenant of David that we're referring to. Instead, it's the Mosaic covenant. The covenant God gave at Mount Sinai to Moses and the Israelites. By the way, that covenant, if you go back and read in, uh, in, in Deuteronomy, it, it gives specific instructions to the future kings who would reign in Israel. So God anticipated, even though when when Moses was there, and even for for several hundred years after that, there there were no kings in Israel, but God anticipated the day when there would be a king in Israel. And he laid down the rules. He laid down the laws. And he said that there's rules, there's instructions. As long as they kept this covenant, David's dynasty would continue a long time. Is that what it says? What's it say there? They will sit on your throne forevermore, it says. All they had to do was keep God's law. And David's descendants would enjoy an unbroken succession on his throne. Now, before I go any further, you may see the problem with that. You may already sense that there is a a fly in the ointment, so to speak. But just hold off a minute, we'll get there. Because this is an amazing promise. This is an incredible blessing. Think about the hopefulness. Just imagine this. If you were in Israel the day that Solomon ascended to the throne of David, Solomon becomes king and he is is crowned king in Israel. What hopefulness, what joy and rejoicing. On that day, God is faithful. He has kept His promise. The Son of David is now sitting on the throne. What a day of rejoicing. An anticipation. The future is growing brighter and brighter every day. How long do you think that feeling lasted, though? Right, God's law. What did it say about kings? Well, I'll just give you two things. It said that kings were not to marry many wives, nor were they to amass many horses. What does the Scripture tell us? Second Chronicles nine twenty-five. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots, and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. And then verse 28. They brought horses to Solomon from Egypt and from all the lands. Hmm. Sounds like amassing horses, doesn't it? And of course, Regarding wives, you may be familiar already, 1 Kings 11 says, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Here in Psalm 132, the promise is a perpetual dynasty if they obeyed. But what happens if they don't? Now, the psalm doesn't say. But the way that verse 12 is worded makes you think that if they don't obey, the dynasty will fall. Now, Humanly speaking, that's exactly what happened. Right? Again, we've already pointed out Solomon. Proved unfaithful. His son, Rehoboam, lost ten of the twelve tribes of Israel to secession. It almost turned into a civil war. And then one after another, the kings of Judah corrupted the throne and they polluted the land until Yahweh drove out Israel from the land. He drove them into captivity. He removed them all. He cut off the throne of David entirely from Jerusalem. And for more than 2,500 years, there has not been a king in Israel, much less a Davidic one. What does that mean for the sworn oath of Yahweh? Has He failed to keep His promise? One commentator that I read this week said this. I'll quote him. He said, Yahweh kept the covenant commitment for 400 years, but has then abandoned it for 2,500 years or turned it into something else. Now, respectfully, I think it's dangerous, bordering on heretical to say that the Lord could abandon His covenant promise. And it's only slightly less problematic to think that He would turn it into something else. But that's the point of swearing an oath. An oath is binding. An oath is unchanging. The truth is, though, in order for God to keep His covenant promises, He has to take matters into His own hands. Again, you may have already anticipated this when we said that He says, if all of your sons will keep the law, then they can stay on the throne. If all your sons will keep My covenant, then they can stay on the throne. What's the problem with that? Well, none of us has ever been able to keep the covenant. None of us has ever been able to keep God's laws. None of us have ever been able to do that. Certainly not David's sons. And so where David's sons all failed, in order to fulfill the covenant, the Lord has to raise up one who would succeed. There has to be a son of David who would succeed. And it has to be all God's doing. That's really the point of the rest of the psalm. In fact, if you beginning in verse 13 and read down to the rest of the psalm, it's all I will do this. The Lord has done this. I will do this. Everything here from the rest of the, the rest of the psalm is all about what God does in order to fulfill his covenant promise to David. It's not about what David did or what any of his descendants do or anything else. All of this is about what God does to keep his covenant. Because humanly speaking, it's impossible. No one can keep the covenant with God except God. He's the only hope. His grace. And that's what we see here in this psalm, very, very clearly displayed. Notice what he says in verse 13. For Yahweh has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. Every one of the kings of Israel and Judah were disappointing. Even David, frankly. Right? We love David, man after God's own heart, but David was disappointing in so many ways. Disappointing as a husband, disappointing as a father, disappointing as a king, disappointing as a man. David failed and every one of his sons failed. Does that mean that God's oath would fail? And the answer is no, absolutely not. Now, there are three things that are promised here that find their fulfillment, not in David, not in the rest of the kings of the Old Testament. In fact, David and Solomon and all the rest of those kings, what they do for us, as we read through those Old Testament historical accounts, is they, they leave us Waiting and wanting one who will finally do what God has promised. One who will finally bring to pass all that God has promised. Because clearly, these men are incapable of it. It's only Jesus Christ. And of course, another one of our favorite passages of scripture to skip over the genealogies in the New Testament, Matthew and Luke, that record for us that Jesus is of the fruit of the body of David. Which is an essential requirement for the fulfillment of this covenant oath, isn't it? Had to be a descendant of David. And so the Scripture records very carefully that that is exactly what Jesus Christ was when He was born of Mary. Let's look at these three principles, these three these two promises here. The first one is found in verses 13 and 14. And it's this, God establishes His throne in Jerusalem. God establishes his throne in Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting. David chose Jerusalem. He chose, uh, it was called the city of Jebus when he when he first chose it. The Jebusites lived there and uh, he attacked the city. He captured it and he made that into his capital city. David chose that city. But according to this psalm in verse 13, it wasn't David who chose the city. It was really the Lord who chose Zion. And the Lord didn't choose Zion in order to give it up to the Babylonians. He didn't choose Jerusalem to give it up to the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, or even today to the Muslims. He didn't choose that to give it away. He says, I chose it here to be my resting place forever, he says. There I will dwell, for I have desired it. This is God's choice. He chose that city. When David chose it, he was simply acting out God's will. Turns out it was God's plan all along. David simply was the instrument by which that came to pass. Now again, there are some today who will say that the throne of God has been transferred from the city of Jerusalem to the heavenly Jerusalem. But that's not what the Bible says. And I don't want to Get into a whole theological debate here. There's a whole lot to be said. But let me just simply point out to you, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 says this, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The emphasis is this world is where he will rule and reign. Not in heaven, not that he doesn't reign in heaven, but the emphasis here is this world. The kingdom is here on this world. Zion is His throne. It's the place where He will rule over all. And it was established a long time ago by the Lord's oath. And therefore, it cannot be annulled. It cannot be replaced. It cannot be changed. If He were to change this oath, if He were to change the place of His rule, the place of His throne, then again, it would bring the truthfulness and honesty of the Lord into question. Why does this really matter? Why does it matter to us? I think the the, the fact that God's promises are unchanging is extremely important to us. Because it means that the promises He's made to us also will come true. Think about it for a second. If God could say, let's let's not talk about the throne of David for now. Let's talk about something else. Let's say that God could say that the bodily resurrection that He's promised you and I The bodily resurrection that he secured when Jesus rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 teaches us that. Let's say God says, you know what, I'm going to change that to a spiritual resurrection. No more bodily resurrection. I've changed my mind. Uh, I'm going to do a spiritual resurrection instead. Or what if that glorious hope, Paul refers to it in the book of Titus, the bodily appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ is going to come back physically to this earth. It's promised, but what if God said, "You know what? Instead of a, that's a lot of bother. Instead of that, He's just going to appear spiritually." I mean, aside from the fact that that's pretty much what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe has happened, but that's a whole other can of worms I don't want you to get into. But even setting that aside. If, if we read that, or if someone said that, we would object to those teachings. And we should object to those teachings. Why? Because God has promised us physical resurrection. He's promised us glorified bodies. Isn't that an essential part of our hope today? Isn't that what allows us to go on when we lose someone that we love in Christ, but we know that in Christ, they will be raised from the dead and they will have a glorified body someday. It's not the end. Jesus said when he he ascended, remember what he said to his disciples or or rather what the angel said to his disciples? He will come again in the same manner that you've seen him go. He can't can't change His promises. He can't reinterpret His promises to mean something completely different from what they meant. Psalm 132 says, He has chosen Zion as His throne, Jerusalem, to be His throne. That's the place where Jesus is going to rule. And you can count on it. Because God's promise is, Never changes. He swore an oath. And if he can change one promise, he can change them all. And we have no certainty whatsoever. Everything rests on his truthfulness here. His uh, unchangingness in these promises. But notice there's a second promise in verse 15 and 16 that is also fulfilled in Christ. I love this. God blesses his people spiritually and physically. This is a principle that's often misunderstood and misapplied today. We have a lot of prosperity gospel teaching out there. That God wants you to be healthy, God wants you to be happy, God wants you to be successful, He wants you to be wealthy. And if you just send me a little bit of your money, then that'll all happen. Okay. But that's the like the way it usually works out, right? False prophets enrich themselves and deceive many. It's offensive, it's wrong, it's wicked. And we oppose it. But, but the fact that people abuse this principle doesn't make the principle false. Material blessing is part of God's promise, both for Jerusalem and for all the world. When Christ comes to establish His kingdom. Now, it's interesting to notice. This is what I find interesting. Because in verse 15, he talks about abundantly bless her, talking about Zion's, provision, Jerusalem. I will satisfy her poor, Jerusalem's poor, with bread. This is fascinating to me. He indicates here that there will still be poor people in the kingdom. You think, well, that that can't be right. He says it. I will satisfy her poor with bread. He doesn't say it won't be poor anymore. He says, I'm just going to give them bread. Psalmist mentioned them specifically. But it's interesting, too, because poor clearly doesn't mean destitute here. Doesn't mean lacking the basic necessities of life. Even the poor will have enough to eat. Doesn't mean they won't be poor, but they'll have enough to eat. No one will go hungry in Jesus' kingdom. I love that. There is material blessing. Prophets in the Old Testament speak about this a lot. I think it's Amos, if I recall. Greg could probably remind us we spent about 10 years in Amos, a while back. (laughs) He likes to say. Um, I think it's Amos that speaks about the the sower catching up with the reaper because they won't be able to harvest the field fast enough before they're planting them again because the, the, the earth will be so abundant in what it brings forth. There will be abundant provision, material provision, physical blessing. No one will go hungry in Jesus' kingdom. And we must note this. This is important. We must note that this condition has never been met in any civilization in human history. Right? Every political and economic philosophy claims that it can bring about some sort of utopia. Right? If we just allowed capitalism to work, everyone would have enough. If we, or, 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 if we just allowed socialism to work, everyone would have enough. If we allowed communism to work, everyone would be happy and satisfied. If we were all libertarian, everything would be happy and, the fact of the matter is, every one of those philosophies claims to bring in a utopia. That if we just followed those principles, everything would work out okay. And everybody would have enough, and nothing bad would happen, everybody would be fine. But that's not true. Because none of those philosophies can deliver the goods. Let me caution you this morning. Don't put your faith in a political philosophy. And certainly, don't put your faith in any politician. We're in an election year. It's very tempting for Christians to think that if we could just elect the right guy, everything would be okay. That's a lie. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. The right guy is Jesus Christ, and he's not on the ballot. He's not. He's never going to be. You won't get the vote for him. When he comes to rule, he'll just take the throne and it'll be over. That's kind of what we're talking about here. Don't trust in politics to accomplish what only Christ can do. Material prosperity for all? If another person is telling you that they can provide it, they're lying. What they really mean is material prosperity for me, and you probably won't see it. Real blessing, material blessing, is coming in the kingdom of Christ because it's there that the Lord will keep His promises to David. And he says here, abundantly bless for provision and satisfy the poor with bread. But notice, there are more blessings than that. In verse 16, there are spiritual blessings, and the spiritual blessings are even greater than the physical blessings. Verse 9, it's interesting. Back in verse 9, the people prayed. What did they pray? They prayed, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. We come to verse 16 and we see God's answer to their prayer. What is His answer? I will also clothe her priests with salvation. It's almost as if he's saying, well, you asked for this, but I'm going to give you something better. Not just righteousness, but salvation. And then what else do they pray for? They say, Lord, let the saints shout for joy. And in verse 16, he says, "Her saints will shout aloud for joy. And that word is interesting because in Hebrew, it implies continuous Shouting. So they ask can we now temporarily can we in this moment shout for joy and he says i'm going to give them perpetual joy continual joy In Christ the spiritual blessings are greater and longer lasting than anything that the old testament saints ever experienced when they gathered in the temple They gathered there in the temple in the presence of the ark of the covenant experiencing some measure of God's presence but we are indwelt by the Lord himself. We have better blessings than that. And ultimately when Christ is here on earth it will be glorious for all. The spiritual and material blessings that God promises will be seen finally in the kingdom when he comes. The last promise here in verse 17 and 18 is found in these closing verses God sends Messiah and establishes His kingdom. How are these things to be? God has said, Jerusalem is my throne. That's where I'm dwelling forever. He says, I'm going to bless the people and pour out my blessing, spiritual and material, physical on them. Notice then He turns His focus here specifically to David, to the throne, to this One who's going to come to fulfill all these promises. And it's Messiah, it's Jesus Christ. But notice how he speaks of him here. He speaks of it here as a horn. I'll make a horn to David grow. And that's kind of interesting. This is a direct reference to Messiah, though. Jesus, the coming king and ruler who will sit on David's throne. The horn imagery is interesting because uh, it's it, it carries the idea of power, right? Because when you think about an animal an animal that has a horn, that horn represents the animal's strength. And the bigger the horn, the bigger the animal, usually. And that, that, that indicates a stronger and, and more ferocious, more uh, powerful beast. And so the idea here is that he's going to cause this horn to grow. He's going to enlarge it. He's going to be, be greater and more powerful than any king who's ever ruled on the earth. But at the same time, he says he's going to prepare a lamp the second part of verse 17. So he's also, in addition to being this powerful ruler who's going to come to reign, he's also a lamp bringing illumination, truth, guidance to those under his royal authority. Is it any wonder then that the Apostle John calls Jesus the true light who comes into the world? Giving light to every man. It's exactly what God promised to David. David. That your son, this descendant, who's going to come and sit on your throne, he's going to be great in power, but he's also going to bring light, illumination, truth. But notice also, his coming spells disaster for those who would oppose him. The first part of verse 18, his enemies I will clothe with shame. It's kind of an interesting uh, expression in light of the fact that he says he's going to clothe his priests with salvation back in verse 16, but here the enemies are going to be clothed with shame. He will repay them according to their works. And his enemies are going to be utterly defeated and disgraced. But my favorite line, the one that's really kind of captured my imagination to speak, is the very last one. Upon himself, his crown is Shall flourish. Talking about the crown of Christ here. That word flourish is kind of an interesting term because it it's a word that's used to describe a plant, a plant that is that is living, that is vibrant, that is blossoming and growing, but it's also used to refer to gold that shines or or precious stones that shine when they're polished. Now, have you ever seen something? I maybe a house. Think about a house that, like, um, at one point was really stylish, really beautiful, even luxurious. Maybe like a house that 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 was built and kind of was opulent and very luxurious. Have you ever seen a place like that? But that was—it's kind of one of those places that that was built a, a few years ago, and so now it's kind of dated. And it was really nice at the time when it was built and it was really kind of kind of cutting edge and filled with all the amenities. But now some time has passed and it's kind of passed its prime a little bit. It's a little bit dated. Maybe even tarnished a little bit. Not that it's been neglected. It's just that it doesn't really communicate luxury anymore like it used to. It's kind of what happens, right? And we were, we laugh about this, and I know it's kind of silly, but uh, we were talking with Greg last week, and he was talking about um, kitchen appliances and different colors, right? We were talking about colors and different colors come in and out of style, you know. And apparently, white is going out of style now because it's getting really expensive to buy white appliances because they nobody wants to make white; they just want stainless steel. And we were, you know, Greg was was. Wishing back for the days of the avocado green, you know, the mustard yellow and all that stuff you could get. You know, Some of you may still have those in your home, I don't know. I'm not trying to mock anybody. But you know, those things, like, they were kind of stylish for the time. But now we look at them and we go, oh, well, that really dates it. Right? You walk into a kitchen you see that and you go, oh, okay, I know when this kitchen was built or when it was remodeled. Because I can tell from the color of the appliances. They, they tell us something. And so they kind of communicate that, well, it might have been stylish at the time, but now we kind of go, yeah, that's not very nice. You wouldn't find that today in the store. And that, that's just kind of how things happen, right? Things that used to be the style are no longer in style. And you look at pictures of yourself and you go, oh, man, why did I dress that way? Why did I wear my hair that way or whatever? And at the time, you, you just thought, well, it was stylish. It was in. It was fine. But now, not so much. And it just kind of, that happens. But this is what I think this verse is telling us here. That is never going to happen to the crown of Christ. It's never going to happen to the kingdom of God in Christ. Why not? Because it's going to be living. It's going to be vibrant like a plant that is constant. Think about this. It's like a tree, right? Like a tree that is planted by a, by a water source where it gets plenty of water, gets lots of sun. And what does that tree do? It grows and it renews itself constantly. It is always fresh and green. Each year, it looks good every year, year after year after year. Why? Because it just keeps renewing itself. That's the picture that he's giving us here when he says the crown will, will flourish. He says it's, it's never going to tarnish. It will always renew itself. It will never become dated. We'll never look at that and go, well, that was, that might have been luxurious before, but it's kind of gotten old. It's kind of gotten stale. The kingdom of of Christ is never going to be something. It's never going to be something that we look at and go, "Eh, this is not that impressive anymore." You kind of get used to it. I mean, again, I don't know about you, but there's things like that. Like if if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, it's it just it almost takes your breath away. And and I think if I lived like right next to the Grand Canyon, I would always feel that way. But I don't know, because there's a part of me that just knows it's it, it possible for that to become the, just the wallpaper. And you just go, I see it every day. It's, just, it's no big deal. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen with Christ on His throne and His kingdom. He'll be fresh. It will be vibrant. It will be constantly new. His reign will be glorious. It will be eternal, unfading, never growing old, never getting dull. It'll never happen in the kingdom of Christ what happened in Israel when the Ark of the Covenant was lost for a hundred years and people just went about their life as if nothing had happened. We'll never lose sight of that. The glory of God and the glory of Christ in His kingdom. It's beyond anything that we could ask. It's beyond anything we could really imagine. And this is really what is so significant here about Psalm 132. God has guaranteed it by swearing an oath to David. The question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is very simple. Are you looking for the fulfillment of these promises? Are you watching for the coming of Christ? Waiting for Him to take the throne in Jerusalem, to bless His people, to establish His kingdom on the earth. What does that mean to say, are you waiting for Him to come? Well, have you believed on Jesus? Have you put your hope in Him? Have you trusted in Him to save you? Are you living today recognizing that He is your King, your Lord, your Sovereign? Maybe you resist the idea of submitting to anyone as king. We, we like to be independent in America. No one can tell me what to do. We'll live life on our own terms. Let me remind you that does not in any way affect God's plan. And it will not in any way hinder him from fulfilling his promises. And the psalm says that if you resist his rule, resist his authority, that you will find yourself clothed in shame and disgrace as an enemy of Christ. So today, will you humble yourself? Will you turn to him? Will you confess him as Lord? Will you join with the rest of us and with the psalmist as we anticipate the coming of his kingdom? Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the wonderful promises we have in Jesus Christ. These promises that You made to David so many years ago. There are a lot of people today that have the idea that, well, it's been a long time and these promises haven't come true and nothing's happened, there's no king. Maybe you changed your mind. Or maybe you you had something else in mind. Maybe it was something else going on. or, Or maybe you just have allowed your promises to fail. Father, I pray that we would cling to Your Word, hold tightly to Your promises, with full expectation that You will keep them, that You will fulfill them, that everything You've said, You will do. That Jesus Christ is coming back to establish the kingdom that You swore that You would give to David a kingdom that is eternal, a kingdom that is forever. Help us to live today looking forward to that kingdom. Hopeful. Even with all of the darkness and difficulty around us today and the struggles and the trials that we face, help us to be hopeful because we know that there is a greater day coming. That you will keep your promises. I pray that You would reassure our hearts and stir in us a desire to live today prepared for that. Live today uh, in, in holiness and in obedience because we're looking for the coming of our King. And we want to be ready. We want to be pleasing in Your sight when You come. Lord, I pray that You would remind us today of Your faithfulness in light of Psalm 132. And thank You for it and the confidence that it gives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.